Uh, we are privileged to have Paul and Beth Wright with us. Uh, Paul and Beth Wright are missionaries to Argentina. And Paul, go ahead and make your way up here. Uh, they've been here, I think this is maybe your third visit since I've been here. Um, and uh, Paul uh, teaches and trains and equips uh, men and women, I guess, for ministry. And uh, he works through the Mendoza Evangelical Bible Institute. And so he has a message from God's word to share with us. Uh, and also he's going to share about uh, their ministry as well as he opens God's word to us. So this morning on the front cover of your bulletin, it looks like we're doing Journey with Jesus. Well, we're still on a journey with Jesus, but in Argentina and what God is doing there. Uh, so please give a warm welcome to Paul and Beth Wright. Well, good morning. Thank you very much for the warm welcome this morning. Really appreciate that. I would like to invite you to talk to my wife. She's sitting right over there, and she's got a lot of good things to say, even though she's not up here up front. Um, two weeks ago, no, excuse me, two months ago, Beth and I arrived back in the States. We got to the airport, and it seemed like everybody in, 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 the, in the waiting room got out their cell phones and was looking through things and... and, and totally oblivious to what was happening to the person next door. I mean, right over there was a couple kids fighting. Right over there, there was a woman who was almost in tears. Over there, there was a man who was really angry, obviously some kind of a manager or something. No, that is not acceptable. You tell it. And he was really upset. But everybody was focused on their cell phones, you know, either catching up on their emails or, or playing solitaire. I don't know. But everybody was stuck with their nose and their cell phones. I joined them. <laughs> but then I got to thinking, isn't that a paradigm for our spiritual lives as well? I have to confess that many times when I go to the Lord in prayer, I just pray for me and mine. Do you do that too? Just the folks in our church, just the folks, just my family. These just, the, our world is really small especially when we're praying. We focus on just me and mine. And I'd like to suggest this morning that I think Jesus wants us to have a broader perspective. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. And yes, we're still walking with Jesus, but just in another gospel. John chapter 4. It's a very familiar story if you've read the New Testament. Jesus' popularity was growing in Judea, so he decided to go north to Galilee and the Bible says something very significant in verse 4. It says that he had to pass through Samaria. Now, it doesn't say explicitly that this was the case in John chapter 4, but if we add some other passages, some other texts, some other things that we know to be true, I believe that he was being led by the Holy Spirit to go through Samaria because he had to talk to somebody. He stopped in a place called Sychar, sat down at a well. Meanwhile, the 12 disciples, they had to go into town to get some Kentucky Fried Chicken because they were hungry. After all, it was midday. And Jesus sat down to rest at the well. A woman came up to the well and was going to get some water. So Jesus asked the woman, can I have a drink of water, please? She stood back, what? 
Samaritans, I mean, Jews don't have anything to do with Samaritans, and you're asking me for water? Jesus said to her, if you knew who it was that was talking to you, you'd ask me for water, and I'd give you water that would give you eternal life. Oh, I want some of that water, she said. Good. Call your husband. Ooh. I don't have a husband. Things are getting awfully personal at this point. Jesus said, yeah, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the one you're with now isn't even your husband. That's way too personal. So she decided to change the subject. You know, your people tell, say that you need to worship in Jerusalem. My people say we can worship at this mountain. And then she introduced a big theological conflict, you know, to dodge the question. Jesus said, well, what God really wants is for people to worship him in spirit and in truth. Well, you know, I am told, she said, that when the Messiah comes, he's going to tell us everything. I imagine Jesus looked her right in the eyes and said, I am the Messiah. I am that person. Her eyes probably got about this big. And you're talking to me? Now, John does not record the rest of the conversation, but I imagine that there was more of it. But the fact of the matter was, she was so excited about meeting Jesus, she forgot all about her water pot, left it there, and went running back into town because she had to tell everybody that she knew that she had talked to Jesus. She had met the Messiah. She was excited about the changes in her life. One of the things that's kept me going the last couple of years is the being excited about what God's doing in other people's lives. For example, the fellow that has a circle around his face is Julian, 19 years old, studying at the university. He was going to study law, but he decided to change to journalism. Either way, I'm sure that God's going to use him, but I suspect that God has a bigger purpose for Julian. I think God is calling him to the ministry because he has a passion about learning everything he possibly can about Jesus, everything he possibly can about the Bible. He is soaking it up like a sponge. God is changing Julian's life. I could talk about the other four students in that picture too. Each one of them, God is using them and working in their lives in a tremendous way. But there's another person I want to mention. Her name is Erika. Erika is, is a gynecologist and obstetrician. Together with her husband, who's also a medical doctor, they're preparing to go to North Africa as missionaries. But together they were taking my Romans class earlier in the year, and on one of the assignments, I'm, I'm a, sometimes I can be a difficult teacher. <clears throat> I don't ask for uh, final exams usually, but instead I ask for weekly papers. And so every week they have to turn in something, and typically I have three questions. First of all, what was it in the class that impacted you? Secondly, why did it impact you? And finally, and this is the kicker, finally, what are you going to do about it? That last question puts them against the wall. Her husband, Erika's husband, Jose, wrote in one of his response papers that he was impacted with the lesson on Romans 6, 11 to 13. Don't let sin govern your body. Instead, present your bodies and your entire selves to God, it's the same principle of Romans 12, 2, 
where, Jesus, where Paul writes and says we need to present our bodies a living sacrifice. But Romans 6.13 really got to him. He decided that every morning before he went to work at the hospital, he would dedicate his life, his mind, his body, everything, and then pretty soon Erika got in on that. And together as a couple, they decided to dedicate their bodies, their minds, their lives. That day, whatever they were going to be doing, they would dedicate themselves to living for Jesus. And believe me, God is using their lives tremendously in the hospitals where they work. I've got a lot of other stories I like to tell about people whose lives have been changed. My wife works in a ministry, a very special ministry, called Open Hearts, or Corazones Abiertos in Spanish. And in, after the series, of, a series of, of, of sessions, usually five to six weeks, the final session is always about celebrating, celebrating the changes in people's lives. And many of the people who are involved in that are really hurting. Some of them have been through some, some serious trauma. Many of them have suffered abuse of some kind. But as they work through their issues and work through their emotional baggage, God starts changing their lives. More than once, my wife has taken a person, hey, come on, let's go to the bathroom. What? Yeah, let's go to the bathroom. Look at the mirror. Look at your face. Even your face has changed. And believe me, when God changes a person's life, we need to celebrate that. And so the last session in, in Open Hearts is a celebration session. The last session of this last series was yesterday. They celebrated by having a very typical Argentine barbecue. That's the way to do it. Meat this thick. <laughs> Can't imagine. Anyway, we need to celebrate when God changes someone's life. I remember so well, I came home from Bible camp when I was 15, and I dedicated my life to the Lord, and I was excited about it. I told people, Hey, I dedicated my life to the Lord. That's nice. That was not the response that I was expecting. Do you celebrate when you see someone's life changed by Jesus, when they encounter Jesus? Man, we need to celebrate. We need to celebrate. And if we're not celebrating, why aren't we celebrating? Well, maybe, just maybe, we're distracted with the mundane. Well, the lady went in back into town, and Jesus was left with the disciples. And so the disciples said, let's eat. Jesus said, I have food to eat that you can't even imagine. What? What? Did somebody bring him some lunch? Somebody else? I mean, after all, maybe somebody went to McDonald's instead of Kentucky Fried Chicken. I don't know. Jesus said, verse 34, look at your Bibles. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. It's not exactly the message that the disciples were expecting just before lunch. Jesus said, what really motivates me, what really satisfies me, is doing what God wants me to do. But where were the disciples? They were distracted with food, in this case. But distracted with the daily, daily things of life. You know, as I look and meditate on this, there's probably three things that distract most people. One of them is getting ahead. Maybe you have a business, you have a farm, you're, you have a career, and you want to really make it go. And so you're focusing on getting ahead, climbing the ladder, having the best harvest possible, whatever it is, you're tr struggling on getting ahead. Been there, done that. Or you might be like me, to-do list. You look at your day timer, and you've got a whole list of things that have to be done. 
And many times I wake up in the morning, and since I'm involved in administration and teaching at the Bible Institute, my list is pretty long. And it goes on from one page, and when it starts on the second page, then I know I've got problems. I've got a lot of stuff I have to do. And I'm really focused on getting everything on the to-do list done. And a lot of times at the end of the day, I don't get it all done. But I'm focused on that, and I can't see anything else. But then there's other times when what narrows our field of vision is crisis. In March of 2017, I came back from a wedding on the bus. I left my car at the Institute so my wife could drive it home. I went home on the bus, met up with my barber, and we were talking. Bus went through downtown. A guy on the bus sat right in front of me and wanted to talk to me. He greeted me in Italian and English and Spanish. I didn't want to talk to him. I was talking with the guy next to me. Besides, this guy was really crass. He used a lot of foul language. I really didn't want to talk to him, but he wanted to talk to me. So he tried to engage me in conversation about religious things, and I was dodging the issue, frankly. But to make a long story short, he said, you know, just as God has his 144,000, referring to the passage in the book of Revelation, just as God has his 144,000, Satan has his 144,000, and I want to be one of those. And then I realized I was dealing with a Satanist. That set me back on my heels. He got off the bus and said, Arrivederci, enemigo, which mixing Italian and Spanish says, I'll see you later, my enemy. And I realized that Satan had me personally in his scopes. Boy, I started praying. Shortly after that, things started deteriorating in a relationship we had with a staff member. That conflict, in spite of the fact that we did everything we possibly could to resolve those issues biblically, degenerated into not one, but two lawsuits involving expensive criminal lawyers and a lot of headache. And believe me, I lost a lot of sleep in the last two years over that issue. Those lawsuits were resolved out of court in last June. So we can praise the Lord for that. The Lord protected me personally and others involved in the lawsuits as well and the ministry at the Institute. And I praise the Lord for that. Two weeks after that, my colleague, usually second in command, his wife was diagnosed with acute sarcoma, bone cancer. Just last week, he put in his resignation, or basically it's, he's calling, taking a time out from all ministry in the Institute. He's one of the founders of the Institute, but his focus is on taking care of his wife. That's the way it should be. But my point is this, that when we're in crisis, our focus narrows down to the pain that we're going through right then. And we can't see what's happening around us. All we can see is the pain. There was a lot of times <clears throat> in the last two years when I felt like chucking it. I felt like saying, God, you're the coach. Take me out of the game. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm done. And God said, no, you're not. You've got to stay in the game. You've got to keep fighting. Not too long ago, I read the autobiography of Don Malarkey, who was one of the members of Easy Company in the 141st Airborne during the Second World War, one of the band of brothers. Parachuted over Normandy, fought through Belgium, was just getting ready to invade Germany during the Second World War, and then the Battle of the Bulge began. 
And in the very first chapter of his autobiography, he mentioned he was sitting in a foxhole, freezing weather, his feet were becoming frostbitten, German bullets around him, he'd just seen his best friend killed by a German grenade, and he was thinking, this isn't worth it. The battle is too hard. I can't take it anymore. Why don't I just take my gun and end it all? And then he remembered that easy company doesn't quit. When we're in crisis, we can't see anything but that. And our vision is narrowed, and we can't see what God is doing. Processing all this, the thought came to me that you can't judge the progress of the war by what's happening in your foxhole. Let me run that by you again. You can't judge the progress of the war by what's happening in your foxhole. Maybe you come, came to church this morning with a very serious problem. You're dealing with grief. You're dealing with a financial problem, a health problem, a difficulty. I don't know what your situation might be, but the crisis is more than what you think you can handle. But let me assure you that God's grace is sufficient. And he'll give you what you need to handle that situation. Jesus said something very significant. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But when we're in the foxhole and we're dealing with our problems and our focus and our to-do list, we don't see what Jesus is doing elsewhere. So perhaps we need to do what Jesus asked the disciples to do, to lift up their eyes and focus on what he's doing. In John chapter 4, verse 35, after telling the disciples that his food is to do the will of the Father, he says, behold, right there in the middle of the verse, behold, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that are white already to harvest. It's kind of a a redundancy there. Behold, that's old King James English. Look! But then he says, lift up your eyes. The look is to get their attention. But lift up your eyes is a very positive command. Lift up your eyes and look beyond the present circumstances. Look beyond your present to-do list. Look beyond the present dailiness of your life and all the stuff you got to do. And look at what God is doing. Jesus was focused on what God wanted. Now let me ask the question, are you focused on what God wants? That's a good question. I was been, I've been really, really encouraged by some of the reports from some of my missionary colleagues. In just a two months ago, we were at a Avant homecoming banquet, and I heard about five baptisms in a Muslim country where it's really not culturally acceptable to even talk about Jesus. But can you imagine five baptisms all at once in a Muslim country? That's happened. A few months ago, I met a colleague who was church planting in Vietnam, having a tremendous amount of success in Vietnam. Can you believe it? God is doing great things around the world. A lot of times, we don't find out about them. Or maybe our focus is too narrow, and we're not looking at those things that God is doing. I have another colleague in Louisiana who works among international students, and he says 80% 
of all international students that come to study in the United States never set foot in the home of an American Christian. Why? We have a tremendous opportunity to share the gospel with them, and they can take the gospel back to their countries. But we're not looking at those opportunities. We're not looking at those opportunities. Not long ago, a friend shared with me a a series of graphs that I want to share with you as well that perhaps will change the way we're looking at what God's doing around the world. The first set of graphs is a graph of the number of non-followers of Jesus to every follower of Jesus. Now notice this, year 100, approximately the time when the Apostle John passed away, there were 360 non-Christians to every believer in Jesus. That's quite a number. thousand years later, 270 non-Christians to every believer. 1,500 just before the Reformation. 85 non-believers to every Christian. 1,900, a little over 100 years ago, 21. 1970, 13. 2010, just eight years ago, seven. Do you notice the trend here? Do you catch what's going on? The number of non-believers is decreasing. Folks, Jesus is winning the war. He predicted that. He said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We are winning the war. So don't get discouraged about what's happening in your foxhole. The war is being won. Let me share one other thing. The number of churches in unreached people groups. Year 100.08. Not very many. But in the last 2,000 years, and especially in the last 50 years, that group has grown. There's now 1,000 churches in unreached people groups. Because what missionaries are doing around the world. Folks, we need to impress on our, on our minds the fact that we are the church, the body of Christ is winning the war. Jesus is going to win. In fact, the book of Revelation tells us that there will shortly come a time when all people from all over the world are going to be able to praise him and they're going to say, you are worthy because you purchased for God with your blood people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, not just Americans, not just people from Europe, but people from China, from Africa, from Argentina, Vietnam, India, all over the world, every tribe. Can we imagine that? An international setting and everybody praising Jesus. It's going to happen. That's where we need to be looking. Two months ago, I had a very discouraging conversation with a student. He's about to graduate. And he's excited about what God's called him to do. God has called him to mobilize believers for world missions. And so he set up a series of of sermons that he wants to preach in his church. So he went to the pastor of his church and he said, Can I preach these messages? You've asked me to preach? This is what I want to preach on. The pastor said, No. What? He said, No. He said, We don't do world missions. We do evangelism locally, but we don't do world missions. I know that pastor very well, and I was very discouraged. I normally don't encourage students to change churches, but in this case, I said to the the student, what has God called you to do? He says, God called me to mobilize people for missions. Well, you have a choice. You can either submit to the pastor, or you can do what God's called you to do. 
decided to change churches and do what God's called me to do, called him to do. I'm disappointed in my colleague, frankly, because if you and I as believers are not concerned about other people and whether or not they know Jesus or not, we're not looking at the right place. And if we as a church, as a body of Christ, are not looking at the need of reaching other people and telling other people around the world, internationally, globally, so that they can know Jesus as well, we're not looking at the same place Jesus is looking. And Jesus told his disciples, lift up your eyes. Look. Look at opportunities around you. Even when you're hurting, even when you're suffering, even when you're going through crisis, there are opportunities to serve him. A week after we settled the lawsuits out of court, I had a chance to go get, pick up a receipt from one of the lawyers that we'd employed. We were able to praise the Lord. The Lord provided the funds. We paid the last payment to the lawyers a week after the lawsuits were settled. And I'd had a chance periodically to talk to him about Jesus. And he said, you know, there's another lawyer who also knows, you know, he's in the same church as you guys. He doesn't know much about churches, but that's okay. He says, he loaned me a book. It's Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. Is it a good book? I thought, I can't think of any better book to give to a lawyer. Yeah, man, you need to read that book. And even though... Personally, I wasn't at a good place. I encouraged him to read that book because the last chapter of that book is a testimony of Josh McDowell and it tells how anybody who reads that book can know Jesus personally. That's the chapter that the lawyer needs to read. So even when we're hurting, we can still be sensitive to what God is using us to do and indicating us to do and even in those certain situations. So we need to ask ourselves a question this morning. Jesus is asking each one of us, where are you looking? Can you celebrate, first of all, with those whose lives have been changed? If you can, that's great. If you can't, then what's the problem? Are you distracted with the mundane? Are you bogged down in the dailiness of what you, ever, what, what you do? And if... That's the case. Jesus wants you and me to look up, to look and see what he's doing and be sensitive to what he's doing. Listen for his voice. See what he's doing. Listen for his voice and get involved wherever he tells us to get involved. We need to pray. We need to be, in, be, be sensitive to opportunities here locally. And above all, we need to be sensitive to what God's doing around the world. So let me leave you with that. Are you looking where Jesus is looking? And if you are, what are you doing? Are you in sync with what he's doing? I certainly hope so. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for what you've taught us this morning. Thank you, Father, for your great grace that has given us an opportunity to share with other people, the privilege of knowing Jesus. Father, I ask that you would work in our hearts, that you would make us sensitive to your voice so that we are compelled by your Holy Spirit to speak to the people that you indicate to us. I pray that you would be motivated for, a, that you would motivate us to, to do everything that we possibly can so that the message of the gospel 
can go out around the world. Lord, teach us to sink with your Holy Spirit so that others can know Jesus. Above all, Father, help us to sink with you. hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.